Hi, I'm Jen. And I'm Jen. Welcome to Marginalia Pod. A retreat reading is a sacred practice and find meaning and connections through our favourite books. I would like to begin by acknowledging the Gurungai and Darug people, traditional custodians of the land where I am recording today, and pay my respects to their elders past and present. I'd also like to acknowledge Tungata Whenua of Tafanganuya Tara, where I'm recording today. Another week, another Saturday. Happy Saturday. It's a nice day. It's sunny where we are, both of us. No. Never happens. Delightful. Cannot get my book stand in the right place there. I think that's better. <laughs> I <laughs> like did a clean up this week and I was like, I'll make everything so good. And now I can't find anything, which is just how it works. Oh. That's all right. Uh, what sparked joy for you this week? I guess for me, the biggest thing was I had, I'm doing this, as you know, this month long writing mentorship mm. with Maggie Stigbarter author of our book and um <laughs> I had my first one-on-one session with her on Tuesday which was just really lovely like I didn't really know what to expect or you, you go in you know to talk about your project I was a bit stressed because I'm like what if my project is terrible <laughs> and she was like just so lovely about it and so thoughtful and had great things to say and I'm really excited about the next four weeks that I have left with her to do this thing and just focus on my own writing which is really cool so yeah oh that's so good I really loved the class I did with her it wasn't quite as intensive or as one-on-one but I still really enjoyed getting that wisdom that she has from her years in the business and also like the way that she talks about writing as something that is something you can get better at I feel is so refreshing because the narrative around writing my whole life was like you have to be this great talent like you wake up formed from birth knowing how to write and actually if you just knuckle down and pay attention you can learn a lot and become a better writer which is a great thing for me so I love that you're getting so much from it she's really lovely yeah, she's unfailingly practical I mean I am reminded myself of all, all the things that I loathed from my you know I did do a degree in writing I did mm. four years of intense writing two like actually seven no how many six years if you count my master's degree which is just like constant workshops and I'm reminded of what I loathed about those workshops which is the other but it's people. good for me <laughs> yeah <laughs> but it's good for me to also just like rein that in um so yeah I mean it's yeah. a challenge but I, I do appreciate the practical advice what sparked joy for you this week um I got a really nice letter from my mom this week and it just sort of came at a really lovely time and I yeah I don't know it was just really nice it was just newsy full of updates you know this thing's going on with the house and this is what your sisters are doing and this is what we did with the grandkids and um and also some news that my younger sister is pregnant which is really exciting it's gonna be her fifth though and I'm like oh my gosh how you only have two hands but (laughs) I'm really happy for her and her husband and he seems like a really lovely person I haven't met him but like benefit of the doubt he seems really Mm -hmm. lovely I mean if my mom likes him then that's a pretty good thing because my mom is generally like who is this boy he is not good enough for my my child (laughs) so that's yeah I mean I I come by that honestly all of my friends were like why do you hate my partner Mm, mm -mm, because nobody's as good as you are that's why (laughs) um but yeah so it was just a really lovely letter and it was just nice and it came in a bright orange envelope which I thought was really cute oh how lovely (laughs) so um yeah it was really nice to get that so it was a really lovely moment of joy Oh, I love that. Oh, on the other end of the spectrum, though, we read this week's section, chapters 34 through 40, through the theme of frustration. 
it was a very frustrating section for a lot of people involved. Um, mm. Do you have a story in the theme of frustration that you'd like to share? Yeah, so I love a bit of frustration. Frustration is my middle name. I spend 90% of my life frustrated. Um, so I was thinking about a story to tell and I thought I would just go with the most recent example. So a few weeks ago, must be six weeks ago now, my manager came back from an overseas trip. He was away for three weeks um, on a work trip. Came back and told us that he has decided to take another position, another job. And had handed in his notice that day and given four weeks notice, which is kind of the standard notice period you have to give in the public service in New Zealand. But to my mind, when you're a manager at that level is unhinged, quite frankly. Yeah. But fine, whatever. So he, most people will choose to give more notice. But he decided to just give four weeks because his new job wanted him to start. As soon as possible. Yeah. Apparently his new job also wanted him to take some time off before he started his job, which seems like lies to me, but that's fine. (laughs) So he decided to take the final week of his notice period as leave, which again, unhinged behavior. Mm -hmm. Most people would just like get their leave paid out when they left. But for whatever reason, he decided this is what he wanted to do. And for whatever reason, his manager decided to approve this, which all of this made me incandescent with rage. Because... He then proceeded the whole time to tell us how he had no time to do anything, how he didn't have time to do with Pandover notes, how he had all these projects that he wasn't going to finish and how like he was just really stressed and everything was terrible. And the whole time I'm sitting there thinking, but you did this. This is entirely within your control. These are your parameters that you set. Don't now try and make it out as if you're the victim in this situation because the victim is actually us. Hmm. Your team is the victim. We've all been assigned things that we have to pick up that we don't want to pick up or care about. But now because you're leaving, it's become our problem. For me, this is unfortunately uh, is an event that I am responsible for. He asked me to help him with this event back in March, which I agreed, foolishly agreed to do because I had assumed I would no longer be working there by November. <laughs> I'm like, sure, I'll do this event. I won't be here in my head. Um, but no, I didn't have... I wasn't bothered enough to apply for new jobs, so here I am in November, and I just suddenly am now responsible for this event, which is being held at the end of this month. It involves a cost of thousands, and it is actually being held at a, a large government building, which means I have to deal with a lot of government staff to try and secure this venue, who have been ignoring me for three months. Every email I send, I get no reply. Every voice message I leave, I get no reply. And then my manager's like, I really want this locked in before I leave. My man, I can't help you here. I have done everything that I can. And also, I don't care about this. This event that you're supposed to be emceeing, that you wanted to hold, that is entirely your brainchild because you're trying to show up your previous people, basically. It's all ego-driven. You're not even going to be there to see this thing through. It is entirely my problem. And now you are chasing me for things that are beyond my control. Honestly, deeply frustrating. He has now since left um, after just being a headless chicken the entire time for his last couple (laughs) of weeks. Being infuriating, like just infuriating. All of us are just, and I got on really well with him. I have no beef with him. But after this, I'm like, I don't need to see you for another, like at least a month because I am so annoyed (laughs) by your mere presence. And I went to a meeting yesterday with his manager because we're now dealing with this event. And she was just like, I just thought it would be 
more sought out as to why we're having it. I'm like, yeah, no, tell me about it. And everyone is just so frustrated by this event that is entirely my responsibility to deliver. And it's incredibly frustrating because I'm still relying on third party people to make it happen. It's not just me. If it was just me, I could get it done, right? Because mm. I wouldn't have to rely on others. But no, I have to pull all these various bits in. And time is rapidly running out. And I'm just frustrated that it is my problem. And I think, you know, I get frustrated at work a lot. A lot. And fair enough. And I think, yeah, but I also think it's because I'm like Adam. Like, I am Gen V army of one. I do not want to deal with other people. I do not want to communicate with other people. I do not want other people. I really struggle slowing down enough so other people can follow me down the road I need them to follow me like people will often ask me for context and I'll be like you don't need the context you just need to follow me I don't need to let's not stop for 20 minutes for me to explain every step Mm. of this process I just need you to come with me and in civil service that doesn't really work it worked in my previous job because there was never any time to slow down you just had to do all the time but here my current role, people have a lot of time to ask questions and it is incredibly frustrating because I need people just to trust me. I need them to just go with me. I don't want to like show my workings. Mm. So I think that's why I get frustrated. And I sometimes just feel really put upon by the world because I just feel like it's not made for people like me who think like me, who work or prefer to work like me. It's made for people who like to ask questions and like to see the workings so that can be a bit sad sometimes when you just think that you're always going to come up against systems and processes that are not designed for the way that you think and I sympathize a lot with neurodiverse people on this this topic because you know it's an immense privilege for me to know that I am very capable of navigating those systems but if you're someone who you know it's not just a frustration for you it's actually a hindrance it's actually you know hamstrings you that Mm. is horrible that we're forced into these systems that I guess serve the majority rather than those of us who are maybe a bit more unique in our approaches. So anyway, frustration. <laughs> it is a very difficult thing, isn't it? That just because it's such a helpless feeling, isn't it? It's not necessarily like a big event. It's not like rage or like grief or betrayal. It's just this irritation that you cannot fix a problem. It's the helplessness that really makes it just an awful feeling you can't do it yourself either you have to like have others with you and I think that's really and sometimes those people don't want to help right sometimes you'll be in a team environment and someone else just simply does not want to do the thing that they want to do and it hamstrings your entire project but what can you do you can't force them to do the thing Mm. right so yeah it's incredibly frustrating I'm not into it that's why I like to work (laughs) on my own I know that's yeah that's the ideal writer life right being able to just do your own thing quietly in a room with no distractions and lots of beverages absolutely that's the dream yeah the dream (laughs) I definitely feel your frustration there I have worked in jobs where I just felt like the management had no idea what was happening on a store level like I would sit there and be explaining like we had eight people come in today how will I make a two thousand dollar budget and they'd be like you just have to put you know you just put your skills to good use and I'm like on who (laughs) Like, who am I selling to? Please explain. How do I get them to come in if it's just me? And I was also 11 months pregnant at that point. So I was just like, no. That's a very good point as well. When sometimes you're just give, given a directive and you know it's the wrong thing and you know it's not possible, but you just have to do it because unless you fail, they're just going to keep putting it on you. So you're like, okay, I'm going to do this thing. I know this thing's not going to work, but 
disagree and commit as we say yeah 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 just yeah muddle through the best you can and mm. try and figure it out later maybe <laughs> so it's me i'm the nod and smile okay <laughs> oh my goodness shall i read our chapter summaries Yes, please. So Ronan takes the Camaro against Noah's fretful advice and meets Kavinsky for a race where he's surprised to discover that Kavinsky has replaced his car with a even faster replica. Ronan is beaten in the race and then, to add insult to injury, a night horror turns up and tries to kill him. He wrecks the Camaro trying to shake it off. Kavinsky kills the night horror and reveals to Ronan that he's also a dreamer. Meanwhile, in D.C., Gansey and Adam are at cross-purposes, which sparks a fight that's been waiting to happen. It's bad enough that Gansey calls Blue for comfort, despite knowing how unwise that could be. Gansey is still a mess when he discovers what Ronan did to his car. Back in Henrietta, the Grey Man is growing back his scarred little heart and searching for the Grey Warren. Mm. So a lot of frustration in this section. Like, immediately we're thrown into this world of frustration where Ronan is doing something he really knows he's not supposed to be doing, and Noah is sitting there right next to him like, you should not be doing this, and he's like, I'm getting really annoyed at you. But I love that Noah is mm. sort of Jiminy cricketing here right now, and he's like, you just really should not be doing this. Like, I love that he's using so much energy to be like, you're being an idiot, stop it. Like, that is love. It's annoying, but it is love. Especially because, you know, Noah also know, already knows how this plays out, right? Like, yeah. he has seen the consequences, so it's just interesting. Yeah, he knows because time isn't a, a straight line for him. I do love how frustrated Ronan is with Noah. First being like, you know, you're, 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 you're annoying me, but then also when Noah is not helping with the night horror and he's sort of just dithering and he's like, you could help. <laughs> you could help. I just kind of... Yeah. love that one of my favorite things is that he's like it's okay Noah can't die he's already dead like he'll mm. be all right because he is worried about him and he does love him and with Ronan of course you know he'll call you a name 10 times out of 10 but you know he still does love his friends which is the yeah. beautiful beautiful aside there I really felt Noah's frustration that he couldn't materialize enough that he wasn't like present enough I feel that a lot, like, when I'm really energy depleted or, like, if I'm just so busy and my kids need me for something and, like, I just can't fix it or it's happening at school so it's not really my domain and I just can't fix it. It's like, I'm, I really feel that frustration. Mm, it's a real thing, hey? You can't be everywhere at once and that's really, like, I mean, he's a ghost, so, obviously, but he's also trying really hard. Yeah, I also thought there was, like, frustration in sort of the dreaming, right? Like, mm. Ronan is able, at this point... To take stuff out of his dreams, but it's almost not enough, right? Like, so it's not enough for him. It's not permanent enough for him. It's almost like there's a frustration of not being in control enough. Like, the night horrors are an example of that. He yeah. can't really control that, right? So it's both this thing that he loves the dreaming, but it's also a frustration for him. Yeah, and yeah, there's just a lot around the, the lack of having a teacher there. Like, he's frustrated by not having answers. And he has so many answers. He wants to know what he is. He wants to know, you know, it, mm. like he didn't realize that there were other dreamers out there. And and it must be so frustrating in that moment to realize that there are other people. It can't just be him and his dad and Kavinsky. Like if Kavinsky's a dreamer as well, then there are other dreamers. Mm. And it's just the scope of not knowing who you are, what you are. I It's kind of akin to like being adopted and getting an idea of who your birth family is like suddenly you get so much more information about yourself and where you came from but you don't actually know how to contextualize it does that make sense mm -hmm. yeah 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 you don't really have the framework to pass the information that you have 
or really the means to find out more information, right? Like what I love about this and, you know, Ronan's struggle with the dreaming is he's, he's so intensely proud of it in a way, you know, we've got that whole bit where he's like, I did this, I made this happen. But it also is such a source of conflict for him at the same time, because he's so frustrated by it, by not Mm -hmm. knowing, by not Mm -hmm. understanding. For sure. I think Kavinsky is a very frustrating person. (laughs) He's frustrating to everybody. I mean, his thing is he likes to be entertained. So he irritates people in order to entertain himself because he gets to feed on their reactions. Like he is late, even though, like, what is it? Page 266. Kavinsky was late Mm -hmm. as always. Time, as he liked to say, was money. And even though he had plenty of both, he enjoyed the thieving nonetheless. Mm -mm. He drives a car that Ronan says is built both to feed on and produce anxiety. (laughs) Like, that's just a frustrating person. Um... He always misses the sweet spot between third and fourth gear on page 284. Um, and mm. Ronan is frustrated by this. Like, can't he feel the car hanging when he did this? And then Gansey, of course, has an actual phone conversation with them later. And he, he finds himself so angry that he can't speak even after he's taken a minute to compose himself. And it takes Gansey a, a lot to get there. So I would I would posit that of all the people in this series, Kavinsky is probably the most frustrating. Yeah, I mean, the fact that he's always trying to annoy everyone and trying to get a rise out of them and just saying the thing that will automatically make him people the angriest is also my father. So, welcome to my life, people. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. That frustration that Genzi has, right? I kind of mm. love that bit minute where he's like thinking about his dad and his dad telling him about his own boarding school experience. Yeah. And, you know, page 296. Gansey too describes students, comrades really, forming bonds of brotherhood that would last for the rest of their lives. And it goes on to say, it was a community of scholars just outside of adolescence and it was not Agnan B Academy. And you know what it reminded me of? I just thought back to that conversation that we had with Frank about his boarding school experience yeah. and about whether he made those lasting relationships with people and whether there was an expectation of it. And there was some sort of expectation, but that was certainly not his experience, right? But he said that his brother did have that experience. So it's just like the type of personality that you are. You know, Gansey chafes against this world. He talks about being a fish that forgot how to breathe in water. Maybe if he was more like his father, he would find that companionship at Aglenby, but he's not. And maybe, yes, maybe the boys are more problematic at Aglenby than they were at Gansey the second school but it's also how you approach it right and I think it's just Gansey is so desperate for connection but he wants a very particular kind of connection he doesn't yeah. want that superficial sort of bond he's like Ronan right like he mm. his friends are his friends I actually put I put that as into context as part of a larger frustration that Gansey has which is the ideal versus reality so oh yeah the boarding school life his dad's experience of it being like dead poet society, which legit, I think his dad is maybe tainting that a bit with rose colored glasses, but that's okay. <laughs> um, so his dad went to dead poet society. That's fine. Gansey does not think of Aglenby the same. And his perspective of it is because he has these two really good friends. Um, I think also I have exhibit B is Glendower. Like at the end of the section, he talks about the story where, you know, Glendower got really shirty with his cousin Hovel <laughs> and, because he tried to kill him and like you know killed him and stuffed him into an oak tree and he felt like that was unkingly of him and because he really likes Glendower to be this like sainted figure so the ideal Mm. isn't matching up with the reality and then also his own outward facing emotions like he really struggles he feels these things but he, he really struggles with finding the balance between not inviting everyone into these inner feelings not burdening people with 
a negative emotion, but also he's actually experiencing quite a lot of negative emotions right now. And mm. this is where people think that he's fake. It's because he's very good at concealing this. But I just really love that he was like, there were no circumstances where he would have an answered the question, are you okay any other way? Possibly if he discovered a family member had died. Possibly if one of his limbs had been separated from his body. Possibly. Like, I am that person, so I really understand that. That yeah. tension between, like, the feeling you were actually having and the way that you express it is the, you know, reality versus the ideal. And that's where I feel like Gansey has a lot of frustration because he wants to be authentic, but he also wants his, his ideal to be reality and it's just not. Yeah, I definitely saw that as a big frustration in this section. It's just this idea how you convey your emotions, how mm. you get someone to understand you. The frustration when try when you're trying to reach someone and they're not picking yeah. up what you're putting down. Because I feel like all of them are doing this in different ways. Like certainly mm. with Adam and Gansey, they're always talking at cross purposes. Yeah. They're not hearing each other. They can't express themselves properly. And that's frustrating when you can't properly convey what you feel, right? Yeah, their their conversation was a long time coming. I felt a lot about Adam's frustration. Um, he lives inside this this tension of envying Gansey and wanting to be Gansey, but also really loathing and judging Gansey in a way. Mm, mm. And Gansey's actually trying to address it. He's trying to bring it up and say, like, do you actually want this? Is this what you want? And I feel like Adam has really decided that, yes, that is his future. So, of course, he has to want it, but he's not happy. He wants it because he thinks that's what he's supposed to want. That is what he thinks the root out of Henrietta is. He doesn't see another path, right? Like, yeah. as they told him in the last book, you can make your own path, but you make a third option. He mm -hmm. he can't see that beyond this world. So he thinks he needs to be Gansey to have this life, to embody it in order to get out. And that's why it's, I think it's so interesting, page 280, you know, when Gansey says to him, is this what you want? Adam said, I want to get out of Henrietta. He knew it was cruel to say it, even if it was the truth, because of course Gansey would say, I don't. Like the fact that they are just so against each other fundamentally in how they view their futures. And then, yeah. you know, Adam talks about them being on perpendicular paths and this idea that they will eventually have to go different ways and he talks about it on page 280 as well being a tension that was building in him like the one that sometimes haunted him late at night where he wanted to save Gansey or be Gansey and then he talks about wanting Glendower because he needs it and Gansey doesn't which we know Adam knows that's not true yeah yeah that's something that he's had like it's like he's retconned it so that he can feel okay in himself I want to ask if you think that Gansey is asking what Adam says he's asking. Is Gansey asking, why didn't you follow me? Or is he actually asking, why did you leave me behind? I think he's asking, why did you leave me behind? I agree. I think that Adam is hearing, why didn't you ask me? I think he's hearing the first one, like, I am the I king. I should have asked permission. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whereas Gansey is like, we're together in this. We're a group. You're not alone. But Adam is like, of course I am. Which is why Gansey says, you know, it's like your Adam Parrish army of one. And Adam says he was Adam Parrish army of one. Gansey, raised by these adoring courtiers, could never be able to understand that. Adam is always going to judge Gansey because of where he comes from. He's always going to assume that Gansey can't understand his loneliness, can't understand his suffering, mm. right? Like, he just is incapable of have, believing that Gansey can have that empathy. And he is also incapable of believing that Gansey can be generous, right? Because Adam has never known generosity like that. Yeah. And I, I, it really breaks my heart, actually, when, you know, Gansey says, Ronan didn't take my car. And then he gets a text in the next section being like, Ronan took your car. It's so sad. Uh, 
And he's sitting yeah. there convincing himself that Ronan and Kavinsky aren't alike, even though they do have a lot of similarities. He's like, nope, Ronan is better. Ronan is better. Ronan is better. I can I can help him. I can fix him. He's broken. He's He's got a soul. And he's like, he still treats Ronan like he's this damaged person. And I think that's because he has the memory of Ronan before his dad was murdered. But... I mean, he still loves him, and he's like, I will find grace. I will find this forgiveness. I will do it mm. if I have to claw it from the depths of my soul. He's just really struggling. A lot of frustration yeah. with that. Because he needs he needs a touchstone. And Adam has put himself, not because Gansey wanted him to or made him feel unwelcome. Adam has put himself in a different place to mm. the group. And, and Ronan is trying to figure out who he is. And he can't really do that. So he's just burying himself in this, like crush of adrenaline and noise Nancy can't really reach him there either and so he ends up sort of backing out of all of the frustrating things and going to the calm person who is blue and I thought that was a really beautiful moment he was so vulnerable with her it's just something about the way that he just calls her and he says can you just tell me what everybody's doing and blue does she just gives him like the full rundown of everybody in the house yeah i thought that was a real moment of connection between gansey and blue and as we see yeah. it solidifying into something more because i love the the way that's written page 287 you know yeah what he wanted was to be home and home wasn't here he was stretched too thin to consider what was wise or what was not he called blue the connection between home and blue yeah and, you know home is blue that is yeah. where he runs to yeah, just the sound of her voice, the Henrietta lull to it, made him feel uneven and shattered. Mm, yes, this is the good stuff. I love that their connection is starting to strengthen. I think this is the first time that they've spoken like this, isn't it? Yeah. I also kind of wanted to pull that up in comparison with Adam's proclamation that, you know, I got into Aglenby without you. I got blue without you. I don't need your wisdom, Gansey. Like, you didn't get blue. Blue is not a thing to be gotten. Blue is not an achievement. Blue is meant to be your friend and maybe more. Like, that's a connection. It's not a conquest. And the way that Adam is viewing, like, the way that Adam is talking about this, it's like, I, he's trying to tell Gansey that he didn't need his help with these things, but it just spins out to being, like, an achievement that he got, he did on his own. But Blue is not something to be achieved. She's not a prize to be won, right? Yeah, yeah. If we were to quote Agatha Wellbeloved, she's not the prize at the yes, end. exactly. I do love the parallel between Adam and Gansey, though, because they're both so frustrated by this party. They actually mm. hate this party for the exact same reason. I know, but it Adam cracks sort of, me up. I know, like, it's the superficiality of it. It's the performance of it. It's the lack of authenticity. But Adam, you know, Adam loathes it and he kind of just wants to set it on fire, which is why he like sweeps these figurines to the floor, because he hates that Gansey is worried about appearances. He's like, oh. You know, are you worried someone's going to know that everything's not all right? Like, world's ending, folks. Kind of love it. I know it's not very helpful, but I'm kind of here for it. And Gansey also hates the performance of it. He's so desperate for dicks and connection. Yeah. So they're having the same negative experience, but Adam can't allow himself to say that out loud because for him, this is the only path he knows. So he has to want it and he hates himself for wanting it. Yeah, yeah. I think he actually doesn't want it. Even now we're seeing how much he hates it. And he's like, this is the mm. way. This is the way. And I, I kind of would be like, but do you, do you really think this is the only way to get out of Henrietta? You could just get a scholarship to a state school in like, I don't know, Illinois and go there. Do the rally apprenticeship, you weirdo. Seriously, how many cool people will you meet? You could end up doing NASCAR. I don't know. Like, find something that you love and follow that. But don't think that you have to be a specific 
stamp of a person. Like you don't have to die cut yourself to fit a specific model of success. But no, that's yeah. absolutely not. And the frustration and the self-betrayal that will happen over and over again. And he'll get more and more frustrated within himself as this goes on. And, you know, I can speak from personal experience of this. Like, when you are just betraying who you are over and over because you're trying to be something that you think you should be. It's a horrible space to be in. But, hey, we all get there eventually. We learn and it takes us time because we're all very flawed human beings, unfortunately. I love the grey man's connection to Mora and Henrietta. And how he describes falling in love as being the same as being stabbed by a screwdriver. But not ten out of ten. The being stabbed, the getting over being stabbed, which I kind of love. <laughs> it had only gotten terrible when the wound had begun to close, where he'd begun to grow new skin where it had been chewed away. Now the ragged hole in his heart was regrowing out of the scar tissue, and he couldn't stop feeling it. That's page two eighty nine. It's so mm. good. I just love this hitman that has appeared in Henrietta. Is thoroughly charmed by this town. It's so chill as well when he's like dragging the priest over the kitchen counter. Just like yep. calm, calm as anything. So funny. The priest's going, you're a very sick man. And he's like, yeah, probably. But anyway, more about the Lynch boys. <laughs> this poor priest, honestly. <laughs> you have a Ronan in your parish and you've got to deal with this guy too. Ronan who comes in and makes you lie about how much you're renting out the flat. <laughs> like, honestly. <laughs> what a time. Yeah, I also think that the Grey Man is really good at connections, and that's something that, like, he's really good at connecting things together, which is why he's actually quite successful when he's looking for the Grey mm. Warren. Like, he's actually really good at figuring things out, and I appreciate that. I know it's not the, the same kind of connection we usually look for in these texts, but just to recognize a job well done, I think that the Grey Man is good oh, at yeah. putting things together. Totally agree, and it's what makes him good at his job, right? It's the mm. fact that he can make these links and find things for Green Mantle. And why he keeps going back to him, because he's capable of figuring stuff out. Yeah, absolutely. Hmm. I think another connection I really like, and one that always makes me smile when it pops up in the text, is Gansey and Helen and their little sibling <laughs> relationship. They have, I would say, a quibble friendship, where they quibble a bit, but they're most like their sister or brother first and foremost. The Ganziness is like really important to them. And they're both so similar, and they both understand each other really well. And I just, mm. I like that she caught his eye and was like, right. I need to get you out of there. Very good big sistering, Helen. Enjoyed that. Yeah. Just made me smile. And I also love that she's like the joy bill. And he's, yeah. he's that's not a thing. Well, it could be a thing. I kind of love that. And he said, a very small joy debit. She goes, see, it works. Let me know if I need to write you a joy check. I'm really not sure if this works. It's such a good little like, yes, older sister kind of like, trying things on to be wise but it was really cute oh it was lovely i love that he has that line in that section as well where he talks about time feeling irrelevant because for him he's already outside of time so time is kind of irrelevant yeah um i wanted to talk to you about the connection between ronan and the night horrors yeah he, he knows that these night horrors want to kill him right mm-hmm. but they're really a manifestation of his extreme self-loathing And I'm wondering if that's what makes them turn up wherever he is. Like, they find him in the barns. They find him on this road. It's when he is feeling really down on himself, suddenly there's a night horror there to attack him. So he's attracting them like a magnet. Yeah, it's like when he's feeling the emotion that creates them, they find him. And I don't know if that's just to remind him that, hey, you actually do want to be alive, let's try and kill you. (laughs) Well, it's when he's lost the race and he's just starting to figure out how badly he's lost that it turns up this time, right? 
Yeah, and he says the dream's starting to fade because he's experienced this intense joy this mo- when he's racing, when he feels yeah. like he's Euphoria. winning it. And then the line is, but the dream was fading away like they all do, he thought. His joy was dissolving, plastic and acid, and that's when it hits. Yeah. And it's the same when he's in the barns and he's like, you know, he's got the puzzle box, he's trying to decipher the, the writing on the well and then it doesn't say anything new and that same joy, the hope is fading from him. Yeah. And that's when the night horror turns up at the barn. So it's kind of like, I don't know if there's something in that kind of like attracts like. Yeah. Yeah. And speaking of the inverse, I kind of just love that Kavinsky is in a white tank and Ronan's in this black tank and how they're just like these obvious inverse versions mm. of each mm-hmm. other. It's pretty great. <laughs> and the physicality of it, where I think that there's so much about the physicality of both the way both of them race. Like, Ronan talks about the inside of Gavinci's scar after he's wrecked Camaro being, like, this anxiety attack always, you know, just ongoing. And he wasn't sure if he loved it or hated it. But the way he's talking about the race itself, like, um, just how fast he's going and how he doesn't feel anything. There's nothing inside him. Glorious nothing. Like, he's just given himself over to it, and that feels very euphoric. And, yeah, something about it just really struck me that that Kavinsky's all about the discomfort of the process and Ronan is all about transcending the process, I think. Yeah, I reckon that's right. When you're going that fast, you don't have time to think. It's Probably all instinct, not. right? It's all, reflection, yeah. it's all reaction time. This just makes me so glad that I do the speed limit everywhere. Like, I'm so boring. You haven't lived, my love. <laughs> Oh, I did. I used to go faster, but I'm very content with the road rules being the rule of law. I think that that's okay. I think, just circling back to Gansey and Adam, I think Gansey's desperately trying to hang on to Adam, and he's trying to remind him that they have this connection, and that he's not alone. And that's something that Adam really struggles with, and kind of can't let himself believe. And I think Adam really thinks that Gansey has as many friends that are as important to him as Gansey is in other places, I think Adam doesn't really realize it is him and Ronan and Blue and Noah. And, like, that's it. Mm. Yeah. I'm not sure if that is ignorance or deliberate obfuscation or just kind of, like, hoping that that's the case so that he can justify the way he's being unkind. Because he knows he's being unkind. Yeah. But, yeah. So I think that's it. I, I think that's all I had for connection. Yeah, that's all my connection, too. Did you have any tangential? Um, I kind of just had that bit where Ronan is standing outside the Camaro, looking at it, wrapped mm-hmm. around this telephone pole, page 277, and he says he felt like his heart was collapsing inside him. Each wall came down individually, crushing one before it. He's going to kill me. And he's just like, he's going to kill me. Mm. I just... I felt that so keenly and so intensely, and I just yeah. really felt for him. Like, I know it's also kind of his fault, but, you know, he wouldn't have crashed it if it wasn't for the night horror. Yeah, this is true. But he also wouldn't have crashed it if he hadn't stolen it in the first place. No. <laughs> but he's never crashed a different car, and, like, you always think that it's going to be the same. You never think that, you know, if you've done something a hundred times, you're not going to think this is the one time it's going to go wrong. Yeah, which for sure. every time it can be, every time it can be, but you you don't think that. And the more you do something, the less you care, right? The more you successfully race a car, the more the, you successfully 
do something illegal, do something mm. dangerous, and the less consequences you have, the more blasé you become about it because you're like, mm. yeah. yeah. The first time you're so worried about messing up, right? You're timid, yeah. you're scared, but by the fifth or sixth one, you're like, oh, I know what I'm doing. You, it's it's, it's the, yeah. the pattern recognition and the lack of consequences helps to mitigate the risk that we perceive. I think about this a lot when I'm driving because the first time you get in a car when you're first learning to drive, it's the terrifying thing. You've got this oh, yeah. massive, heavy thing around you. Mm. You're driving it around a parking lot, probably. Everything is scary. You don't know how anything works. And now I'm like doing, you know, 120 down the highway with one hand on the wheel and not really paying attention. It's it's terrifying <laughs> the leap that you make from that first terrifying drive as a 16-year-old to how I drive now. Like, For yeah. sure. Yeah. I had to learn to drive twice. You knew this, right? Because it's left-hand oh, drive in the US and I had to learn right-hand drive when I moved here. So yeah. I had to do all of that two times because you learn completely different mannerisms and movements as you're doing it. Like... I would go from trying to shift with this hand to trying to shift with this hand, which is a completely different set of muscle memories that I had to then mm. readjust. And oh, and the clicker was on the wrong side of the steering column, which was a whole other event. Do not approve of that. Thank you. That's um, why I find it so weird when you see left-hand drive cars here. Because mm. I'm always like, how is your brain working? I don't understand. <laughs> because when you're driving on the right side of the road for that car... It kind of makes more sense. Yeah, passengers to the got, curb. Yeah, but if you've got a left-hand drive car here, how is your brain not just so short-circuiting all the time? I don't understand. I didn't race any cars today, and the Lord tempted me. So yeah, I should get... you had Kavinsky and uh, Prokopenko in your, in your sights. And I love the number plate on that Golf. Hick. <laughs> so funny. Are Hicks even really a thing? Is that just someone's surname? I don't know, but I really wanted to drag that Mitzi, like, honestly. It was begging for it. And it was so much traffic, though, so I probably couldn't have done it anyway. But I, I, I was turning off when I saw it, and I'm like, no! Come back! I want to feel nothing glorious, nothing. I can usually beat them if we're just going from light to light, but if it's a straight open drag, then obviously you stand no chance. But, yeah, anyway. Yeah, because you've got nimbleness on your side. Your car's quite nimble. Yeah, and I'm very quick off the line. Like, Ronan talking about how he watches the light of the opposite traffic light. I'm like, yeah, excellent technique. 10 out of 10. I approve. I do that too. That's the only way you know when you can stop. I don't know. For me, it's like whatever I'm doing in the car. Putting my hair in a ponytail or sometimes I'm sitting in the light forever and I'm like, I'm just going to knit a row or... Like, <laughs> yeah. I always Fiddling have something about. to do. I don't touch my yeah. phone because that's against the rules, but what's a couple stitches between friends you know i love that love knitting in the car amazing <laughs> i've got to keep my hands busy at all times um did you have any tangential marginalia yeah all of mine was the race i just loved it so much because i have a past as a hoon and i used to take my extremely beefy grandma sedan out and terrorize the little hectic kids in the big town near where I lived and it was a bad idea and I never won or lost anything memorably but it was fun and it was so fun to just be kind of doing this dangerous thing but um I loved I love the description and I I also love the way that when you're doing something so much like you feel nothing but what you're doing that's how I feel when I'm trying to get to 10k on like a big run I'm like the only thing is that exists right now is my time and my pace and this run like that is the only thing that exists and it's not quite as euphoric as the way that Ronan describes it but it did make me think like oh yeah I've got there too to that glorious nothing it's like really nice when I can actually quiet the brain down and 
do just one thing and that's a very rare thing for me and I think a very rare thing for Ronan so yeah that was my only other tangential oh I no, I lie I did have one more I wanted to point out that on page 269 Ronan said want was eating him alive and I was like yes we finally got it we've got the whole group of them all having this deep-seated yearning Mm. all the wanting like this is how they are framed this is how the entire gangsy is like defined by their wanting for something more so love it love it here for it yeah good catch um did you have an in-depth so my in-depth is actually from the racing section it's two little bits so it's page 269 the sound replaced ronan's pulse and it's page 270 screaming along the thousands of tiny explosions beneath the hood was a place where ronan felt nothing but uncomplicated happiness a dead and empty place in his heart where he needed nothing else so as you said before the context is the race He's dragging Kavinsky down the straight and he's just like getting completely lost in the moment. I think it relates to our theme of connection because it's this moment where he actually just connects with the most primal part of himself. It's this bit where you just tap into yourself in a completely raw way that is unbeholden to all the other noise and complications that life brings. And I think it's a frustration, maybe not in that particular section, but like those quotes that I have, but in this section that that is not how he can always feel like he can't tap into that without this trigger right this trigger of the race I think there'd be frustration with that it has reminded me of my own life because when I was about 17 years older 17 18 I went to a lot of gigs and I went to gigs predominantly because of that line page 269 the sound replaced Ronan's pulse I loved the way that when I was going to a loud rock gig, if I stood at the front, the bass would be so heavy that you couldn't hear anything else. You couldn't feel Mm. anything else. The only thing you had in that moment was the bass vibrating up through the floor and the sound of the noise and the people around you. And then when My Chemical Romance toured the Black Parade for the first time and I went to the gig with my friend and they particularly played a song called Famous Last Words. I really loved the song when it came out on the album. I had a very complicated relationship with it because it's all about one of the lyrics is I'm not afraid to keep on living. I'm not afraid to live my life alone. Now, I did not know this about myself at the time, but I know now that, you know, I am a romantic and I am not a romantic person. And I always used to think that I was broken, right? Like back then I used to think that I was broken and there was something desperately wrong with me and that I was going to die alone and everything was going to be very sad. So I really related to this song Mm. because this was someone saying out loud that they weren't afraid to keep on living. They weren't afraid to be alone and live their life alone because you you get taught that you can't do that. You have to be in a partnership. You have to have someone else. Otherwise your Mm. life is meaningless, right? And then it transpired that Gerard Way, who I thought, you know, having a parasocial relationship with him, I was like, oh, he gets me. He understands it. But he actually was in a relationship at the time. So I'm like, Gerard, you have betrayed me. But anyway, (laughs) (laughs) I went to the gig this first time we saw it and they played Famous Last Words and I was just like, it's absolutely the first time in my life that I really ever felt whole. Like I was there with thousands of other people who were screaming along to the song and it was just the most cathartic thing I've ever experienced in my life. Yeah. And I still think about it all the time and this when I listen to that song, I just remember that and it's like Ronan said, nothing but uncomplicated happiness. You know, a dead empty place in his heart where he needed nothing else. Mm. And I just, that's what I think of when I read the section. I remember that feeling of just unbridled joy at being whole. And yeah, just going forward, it's just like find those moments because there's more of those moments in life. There are more moments that connect with you completely where you can be uncomplicated and just happy. And it's not always, it's not a constant state, but you can definitely find them. I love that. I miss gigs. 
I miss being yeah. able to stay awake late enough to go to things. <laughs> I'm such an old lady. Oh, when I go to drag shows and they start at 10.30, I'm like, 10.30? Guys, I should be home in my pajamas right now. How dare you? It's too late. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Seriously. How, look, this is the thing. Does everybody power nap during the day? I have to power nap and I still have an early bedtime because I am really an old lady. <laughs> I was just thinking the other day about the Joanna Newsom gig I went to, which is one of my all-time favorites, and how good it was. But it was at um, City Recital Hall in Angel Place. Oh, yeah. And that yeah. is just one of the most beautiful places. If you're ever in Sydney, people, and there's an opportunity to see someone you like there, go and I, I've seen Neil Gaiman there. I've seen Joanna Newsom, as I mentioned, and Nico Case. So I've seen some really mm. great artists there. So, Lovely. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, what was your in-depth marginalia? Oh, so because I'm Adam, I'm going to talk about Adam. So on page 280, you're sort of in the middle of this fight. Adam is Adam is reflecting on things. Uh, but Adam was thinking about this suppressed truth. The two of them were on perpendicular paths, not parallel ones. And eventually they'd have to go different ways. By college, probably. If not college, then after. And, you know, Adam here is thinking about what he wants and what Gansey wants. And he's just decided that they're different. And he's telling himself that it means that they're not going to be close forever. And the reason that I take issue with this, and I, I really disagree with this, is because he's deciding this. He's making this a choice that because they're on perpendicular paths in his brain, they don't have to stay close, right? Mm. Um, and how it relates to the themes, Adam is, as Ronan observed, kind of bad at accepting good things. If it's not agonizing to achieve or hard won, then it's been given to him as charity, right? And because of that, he's decided he has to pursue this specific course of action to reach a specific set of goalposts to be like Gansey. Mm. Um, and he's still kind of too emotionally unwell to realize he can't actually be Gansey. So he actually needs to figure out what version of himself he likes enough to become. Um, now, Gansey's always thought of them as equals, so he doesn't really understand why Adam needs these external trappings to validate him. He knows Adam well enough to know that Adam actually hates this fakeness as much as Gansey does. But he doesn't understand what it is about Gansey's life that Adam actually envies. And I think that it's the, like, assurance of love. It's that his needs were met. It's that Gansey was wanted. And that all of these are things that Adam has never felt. So their connection as friends is more tenuous now because Adam is beginning to reject the premise of it, partly because frust his frustration is that he can't be Gansey and doesn't actually want to be Gansey, but he set himself on this path and he refuses to deviate. Um, so in terms of what it reminds me of, I'm in the middle of rereading the Wheel of Time series right now, and I'm on book 10, and so I've got four <laughs> more to go. I'm getting there. I said I would do it this year, and I'm doing it this year. There's a character named Cad Swain whose entire job, as she sees it, is to make sure that the Chosen One um, retains his humanity in time for this last battle between good and evil. Um, and she has the help. She has a lot of help in the form of his friends who love him, but she holds him to account even though he's powerful. She refuses to let him be uncouth or unkind. She makes him use his manners. Like, she's got this particular set of expectations for him. Like, you are going to treat me politely even though you don't mm. like what I am. You are just going to be this kind of person because I have said that I won't help you unless you are. And of course she's going to help him, but she also refuses to let him just become this, like, cold, dead thing. And I think that Gansey is kind of doing a similar thing. Like, he's so careful, but he's still determined to really love and connect with Adam. And he wants to keep that humanity. He wants to keep their group intact because the connection is what matters to him. And so going forward, I'm kind of circle back a bit, but I think that Adam is 
deciding now to kind of throw it in. So he's like, oh, we're going to be on different paths. There's no sense in assuming that burden of grief before the loss actually happens. Like, you don't know for sure. There's no telling what will happen when Adam and Gansey grow up. I mean, canon notwithstanding. Um, but if Adam continues in this vein, he will find himself pushing everyone he loves away in order to protect himself from being known. You have time, but you don't know how much time you have. So I would say that we need to just be okay with being vulnerable. Let ourselves be mm. perceived. Let ourselves be known. It is literally the worst. I know this. You know this. We all know this. But we should do it because by looking ahead, we're not staying present and we're going to miss what we have. And this is what we get. So we should be in it. I had a really interesting conversation with my mum this week, actually, about how sometimes we live our lives for a future version of ourselves. We're making decisions mm. for the future of ourselves, all these things. But we aren't guaranteed that future. There's no point in a way to think too far ahead or to be like, I'm going to, you know, make these sacrifices for me now so that I can have that in the future because you might not be there. You're yeah. making so many assumptions in that moment. So why punish yourself in the moment for something that may not come to fruition? Like you should enjoy it now while you can because it's no guarantee you're getting it tomorrow. Absolutely. And on the other hand, I also say invest in future laziness, right? Do things that will make your life easier in the future if you can. So, yeah. Yeah. Not, not, not the like nihilism of like, oh, I don't care. But like, I make the school lunches at night so I can sleep an extra 20 minutes in the morning and I don't have to get mm. out of bed before I really have to, you know? Yeah. Just giving myself that little treat for later. <laughs> Do, doing meal prep so I don't have to do it later when I don't want to. It's like, oh, thanks, past me. There's something about being kind to ourselves now that does require a bit of future planning, but not just investing our whole lives in, oh, when I'm, mm. when I look a certain way, when I've made a certain amount of money, when I finally have this thing that I want, you know, just be who you need to be now. Yeah, no, I agree. That's good advice. Who would you like to spotlight this week? I'm going to spotlight my boy Ronan. Because, as I said, I have experienced that soul-deep panic when you look at a thing, like a totally totaled car, mm. and you're feeling like you're going to be murdered because of it, and knowing that there is absolutely nothing you can do about it because yeah. the moment has passed, your decision has led to this disaster. Mm -hmm. And it is the worst feeling in the world. It's worse than the crash, it's worse than the shock, it's worse than whatever pain you're feeling. It's just utter despair and dread. So yeah, I know it's mostly his own fault. But it's horrible, and I just wanted to recognize him for that moment of despair. It is a horrible moment, and I felt so much for him. And, I mean, obviously he had to do this thing. He had to go and do the horrible thing. But, like, oh my goodness, the mom in me is just like, oh, kiddo. Mm -mm. <laughs> Let's talk about it when you get home, okay? Which is fine. It's the fine reaction to have if you're like, and I think like Gansey's actually pretty chill for the most part, but oh lord. I know. Yeah, no, I know. I, I just I, was I've... thinking that car safety ratings are so terrible. It's a miracle you're alive, Ronan Lynch. Yeah, the dread, the dread of having to go home and knowing, knowing that you have. <laughs> all right, I don't miss being a teenager. Is all I'm saying. <laughs> Oh yeah. The only person I get who gets to like make me feel like that now is me. So pro yeah. tip, everyone. I'm really good at making myself feel like, oh, I don't really want to talk to me right now. Me hasn't <laughs> been doing what me should be doing, so let's not talk to me. Let's just go read a book or something for a couple of hours. <laughs> um, who would you like to spotlight? I'm gonna spotlight Helen. Um, Aww. she I think is not in her element either, but she's quite good at like Gansey is at at sort of dealing with these people that their parents have surrounded themselves by. Um, and she's also an incredibly generous person. 
Like she loves the puzzle and immediately wants to help solve problems and she sees Gansey in a moment of need and just pulls him out of the awfulness of this conversation about locally grown cucumbers and transport <laughs> regulations and and not having food in seasonal out of seasons and she's just great I just love her and I think that you know as I guide my kids to being like good siblings for each other like I really appreciate when you get like siblings that actually like each other in fiction and are like mm-hmm kind of on the same page and like you you really feel like the Gansey family has their own little Gansey culture which I love that's a very accurate reflection of how families are like their houses are the place that they are and like yeah they were both formed from that but they're their own unique people and I think Helen is just a great big sister so and I love her weird little phrases joy builds <laughs> all around so yeah that's why I'm spotlighting this week cute uh, well next week we're going to read chapters 41 through 47 through the theme of arrogance which should be fun yeah. I'm excited about that. Well, we I'm sure Kavinsky, so it'll Yeah. I was going to say I'm sure Kavinsky will bring the arrogance. Mm, we're sure. But it'll be interesting to see how it goes. Mm. Thank you so much for this yeah. delightful section. So much to get oh. into. Thank you for potting with me today, especially when it's another semi-quarter master magical final for your girls. Semi-final today. Yep. Kicking semi-final. off 7:30. Fingers crossed playing France. Okay, I don't know if I can watch it here, but I will keep my eyes on the news to see how it goes. Thank you. I'll refresh the website. I know that we've got two little fans here who will be very keen if we can watch the match. We'll try to, but good luck to the to the Black Ferns. I know it will be too late by the time this is published. Well, hopefully by the time this is published, they've won a World Cup. So fingers crossed. That would be amazing, and they would have earned it for sure. But yeah, Yeah. enjoy the game. Thank you, um, and enjoy your evening. I'll see you next week. See you next week. Bye. Bye. Thanks for joining us today. Marginally Potter is written, edited, and produced by Jen D and Jen V, with additional editing and production support by Simon B. If you enjoyed our chat, you can subscribe to Marginally Potter on your podcast platform of your choice. Your support means the world to us. We'd love to hear from you. You can email us at hello at marginaliapod.com. Our music is by Scott Buckley. For extended show notes or to find out more about us, visit us at www.marginaliapod.com. 